For those of you that have listened to the podcast, you know how big of a fan we are of Build-A-Trend and that we have used this software for the last four years. And many of the guests that we've brought on the podcast are also Build-A-Trend users. And in this day and age, with as busy as all of us are in construction, as complicated as it is with escalation pricing, lead times, tracking, organization, all of us need a good project management software to help simplify and organize our business. And there are a couple features that we love a ton about Build-A-Trend. And one is the owner portal. The other is the daily logs. And these are features that we use daily, right? Half of my clients are out of state. And as an owner, it is so imperative how we communicate with our clients, with our team, with our customers. And through Build-A-Trend, this allows us that quick connection. They can check at any time. We can communicate with them. We're up to date. This has actually helped us win jobs, win projects because of that organization, especially at pre-construction. And Build-A-Trend also offers a ton of service on the back end, training and understanding and workshops, you know, to help us use our software effectively. They also have the podcast, The Building Code. To learn more, head to buildertrend.com backslash AFT to get a 60-day money-back guarantee on your Build-A-Trend account. That's 60 days to make sure you love this product with no pressure, and I know you will. You know what? We can make this number work. I find that the minute we're having that conversation, we can make it work because it's going to go well. If you actually step back and looked at yourself having that conversation, like, how often do our jobs go perfectly? So you're willing to take a risk because if it doesn't go perfectly, then what? That means you just broke even. And really, if you break even, it means you're loaning money to your customer for free, which is effectively lose money, which a lot of contractors don't grasp their cost of being the bank for our clients. So welcome to the AT Construction Podcast. Super excited. We have Michael Forenberry with us. Welcome, Michael. Hey, how are you, Brad? Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. It's, you know, we've exchanged quite a few emails and Michael, just a little background. He's the chief operating officer, the CEO of ProTiv. And, uh, but again, you have a lot of vast experience and the topics today we're going to discuss, again, I'm really excited about because I think a lot of us struggle with understanding labor, understanding, uh, you know, it's very common, especially for my trade partners to understand, do we do like a piece rate and hourly benefits, pros and cons? I know we're going to dive into that. Um, yeah. but, but where I'd like to start maybe to at least basis this conversation is really your experience. You know, the building multifamily in New York city, that's, that's a, a great task. I've been to New York city many times. I love the city and, uh, I'm always astounded by how people build there. Cause it's hard enough for me to get people to show up and build in Phoenix and we have plenty of space. So what's that like building multifamily there in, in Manhattan? Yeah. Uh, I guess a, a good analogy would be when you send a couple of your guys over to home Depot to pick up a few things, if you forgot something or they got to run by, um, do you have a, do you have a parking ticket budget for that trip every <laughs> single time? Because it costs $65 to pull up in front of Home Depot on 23rd Street and get some lumber and, you know, or get whatever parts you forgot and get them into the truck because you've got to park there. There's nowhere else to park and they're going to write you a ticket. So, so hold on. Even you know, at Home Depot, you have to pay to park. Yeah, well, not just that, but there's not actually any parking. I mean, in my theory, you might catch one of the commercial spaces somewhere along 23rd Street and all your stuff up and down, but you just pull up right in front, run in. Don't worry, they'll, they'll give you a ticket. It's basically a sixty-five dollar parking spot. The way to look at it, so <laughs> you just tack tack that on to your uh, thing. I, we have a budget for parking tickets, and it's just kind of part of the cost of doing business in New York City. So let me ask you this, because different. yeah, I've spoken to a lot of builders in New York, and what's unique is you know it could be the same thing too. If you're uh, working in a building, there's an elevator. You know, there could be a gentleman there or a woman, male, female that you have yes. to pay as well to, you know, to use the elevator and have access. And then you have to have someone watching your truck. So things will get stolen or staging or moving. And, and so there's just a lot of complexity as opposed to uh, most of us that aren't thinking about those things. Yeah. It's a fascinating place to work. And it goes all the way from the permitting process where mm -hmm. you have to use an expediter, which is basically someone that you're paying to deal with the city to get permits for you to simplistically put it. And all the way through to uh, the way the building codes are enforced and that process is managed through inspections, et cetera. But the logistics of, of the construction itself are simply more complex because of the um, environments in which we're working. Not just parking, that's almost, that's almost in some ways a small, funny one, but the reality is moving materials in and out of very congested areas where you may have scaffolding up around buildings, you're trying to work around people who live there and moving on the streets and you've got to move materials up four flights of stairs, which were built in the 1940s and are narrow. 
And, you know, it's a, uh, people are coming up and down those stairs who live there. So you can imagine we have people sometimes stationed on one end of the stairs, maybe on each landing to navigate workers moving materials so we don't run into Mrs. Smith trying to carry her groceries out. So, you know, it is, there's a logistic side to this, which is, is challenging. I've often shared that our construction company is as much a logistics company as it is a construction. Well, multifamily renovation work is not overly complex work, but the logistics of executing it here in the city at scale can get very complex. Let me ask you this, you know, doing multifamily, um, you know, with, with your model, is it very common that you're doing your own development and, or are you working as a general contractor hired by a developer to go do the construction? So our particular business, we're focused on the large scale renovation work that occurs here in the city. So it's usually older buildings that are being renovated sometimes by a new owner. A lot of it's, um, affordable housing work. We do a lot of prevailing wage, affordable housing, mm-hmm. renovation work for the city and or market rate as well. But those those projects are generally, we're brought in, uh, we operate both as a GC side of it as well as uh, a subcontractor. Usually in those cases, we're carrying a few of the different trade elements of a, of a larger contract. Uh, we do a lot of flooring and painting and um kitchen, kitchen replacements, tile work, et cetera. We don't usually pick the, we don't usually get the electrical and, you know, the MEP stuff is usually subbed out to, you know, those folks here in the city that do that for a living who will carry most of the other trades. And we self-perform the vast majority of our work. We used to not do that. We used to be more of a mix of self-performance and we would sub, but we're almost exclusively self-performance at this point. So with the, uh, you know, just that business model, you mentioned that you have a budget for ticketing, you have a much budget for, you know, the complexity of staging and just, you know, operations of running any project. Uh, are, are you itemizing this? You know, is the, the owner, essentially developer aware of that? Or, you know, how are you covering those costs that are relevant? Yeah, to it, it definitely gets, it gets certain owners see that as itemized um, information within the bids that they're looking for and the pricing. They expect some of these costs. They're aware that these are it's just more expensive. Cost of doing business. Yeah. You know, and if, if you're over in Staten Island, it's probably a little bit better. Sometimes out in Queens, a little bit better. Uh, but if you're in Manhattan proper, it there's an understanding, there is a cost to doing business in Manhattan that is, just greater. Brooklyn's kind of, we'll put that in the middle. Just depends. Every, every kind of little area can be different. Some of our projects we're fortunate are quite large. Some of the complexes which we work can have 12,000 apartments. They're 80 to 300 acres. They have their own maintenance teams. They have their own zip codes. They have one of them has their own power plant. So they're, they're massive projects, almost city like in their size. And so we may be there for years and years with our own facilities on site, warehousing on site. Um, some places we can use vehicles to move around. Some places we have to use golf carts to move materials around inside of giant complexes here in the city. So they're, they're all kind of unique. And I think that lends itself to organizations that have, again, a logistical mindset to approaching uh, projects that are generating uh, recurring work at scale. Uh, a lot of people who do renovation work might start, you know, a decent side renovation company taking on residential renovation in Dallas could start two projects a week could be a sizable company, you know, $80,000, $115,000 renovations. We can start 50 projects on a Monday. And, and that, that's kind of that scale of that mass could be overwhelming. So it takes a lot of systems in order to, to kind of align materials, people, uh, et cetera, all to the right place at the right time. And I, and I want to get into the systems aspect because I know this is your, um, this is kind of your forte and this is really why I, why I wanted to have you on the podcast today. But before we get there, you know, going back to there, there's a couple of nuggets that you left there that I think are really important for people trying to understand costing, right? And it doesn't matter if you're an architect, designer, builder. The reality is we have costs to run our business and, and it, it could be territorial. It could be, uh, region wise. It could be just be at the scope of work and product that we're delivering. But essentially what you're speaking about, Michael, when you, when you bring up these little things like we're talking about with parking tickets and, you know, the logistics of building in Manhattan or Staten Island or Queens, well, the reality is most of us don't understand how to cost the project. And whether you're cost plus or GMP, you have to understand those costs. We have to understand and communicate this to our customers that, hey, 
if I'm not doing this project, I don't have a cost of a parking ticket at Home Depot, right? So if I am doing your project, I do have that cost and that has to be passed on to you. And that's something, you know, types of insurance and other things that uh, unfortunately a lot of us eat, right? And I've seen a designer, a good example, an interior designer that I work with. How many of us uh, print plan sets and design books and all this information, but we absorb that cost. And what she does is she has her design fee, whatever that is. Uh, you know, I won't share that here, but essentially she also tells her customers, hey, you're going to have printing and you're going to have, you know, FedEx and all these things. And she itemizes it and she bills them as she's printing this stuff. So again, she's not, yep. yeah. And, and, and it's fair when you think about it, they're like, oh, that's reasonable. And sometimes we just don't either want to put forth the effort or offend the customer to understand these are legit costs that we should be charging for. We should be reimbursed. It's all communication. Cause as you walk through that, Michael, I mean, I think any logical person would understand, yeah, if I'm hiring Michael, there's going to be logistics, you know, to, to the project I want to build. I think there's a lot of learning that we go through into what it actually costs to do something. And there's actually had a conversation the other day with a guy named Torlando Hakes. There's a great book out called Sprint, which is effectively how to run a painting company the way you run a software development company, which is kind of strange, but just bear with me. But his thesis is really around a lot of contractors start off as a really successful supervisor for another contractor. And then they're like, I think I want to go do this on my own so I can make more money. And I, I was making $30 an hour, so I'm just going to go out and plant my flag and I'm going to do this on my own and I'm going to charge 40 And And therefore, they think they've just stepped forward into this, this new range of income. And then it, it begins to, you know, they add a couple of people and they pay their folks this. When they go to their first customer, they say, well, I'm worth $40 an hour. And so because I'm now making more than I made as a supervisor before, I feel happy. And the customer kind of looks at him and goes, well, are you? I mean, you're painting, right? And is that really worth 40? And what they're missing in that is that our value we create, whether it's a general contractor or a sub or, or it's just a, a guy hanging his shingle for the first time and, and starting out, it is it is greater than than our than our straight hourly wage at which we're trying to apply to a job. So we're outbidding. We think this is a thousand hours worth of labor in it. We apply some factor to that. We're actually auto, we're artificially discounting the value of what we create. The reality is the person hiring us can't replace that for that price. They can't replace our knowledge, our experience, et cetera. And I think it's our industry needs to take a step beyond just this concept of pricing by the hour or, you know, and pricing by the, the square foot. And some of those models don't, they, they automatically are just discounting out the, the broader set of things that we bring to the table as a professionalized construction organization, creating whether, regardless of trade, regardless of space in which you work. And, and I, I think we are radically underpriced as an industry. And if you can, I'll get on a soapbox too much on this, but the three and a half percent average profit margin of a contract in the United States does not cover the risk which we take every day. I mean, we take legitimate, serious risk in the operations we're taking. Not necessarily physical risks all the time, although that too in some cases, but real business operational risk to our future, to our families, to our financial stability to execute a job for what, three and a half percent on average, the industry, that's that's a rough line of work. And I, I think that there is some pricing power in professionalism. There's some price, pricing power in understanding where your value comes from. I, I could go a long way down that rabbit hole, but. Um, but there, you should. Yeah, but you should, Michael. And the reason being is that yeah. when you share that, just to put this in context, when people you know, when you think about three and a half percent, that may be generous. I mean, at least in, you know, I don't know. with you Angel and I, sometimes. yeah, yeah. That may yeah. be generous for some builders and just some people in the industry, but the reality is as you think about this, uh, and, and I know peers of mine that build here in Phoenix and I'll speak to them and you know, they'll, they'll be open. Hey, I, you know, I'm doing a cost plus model. I'm charging this percent. I'm not charging yeah. monthly supervision, whatever. And then I'm like sitting here thinking like, do you guys even understand? Like you're gonna, the risk with building these. And as you mentioned, you know, class action lawsuits, safety, um, water leaks, you know, mold, you know, all these things that can come back. And, and where we have to be careful is we may have, let's say a good client, right. Uh, that you or I may have, but the reality is they could sell their property in a year 
make a ton of money yes. on it. They're making the upside on it. We have no of that upside. We just have the fee, the three and a half percent, and then the new owner could come in and there could be issues and health hazards and sorts of things that we're not tracking. So how do you create this value, Michael? I mean, because someone such as yourself that, you know, you have a ton of experience, ton of knowledge, you, you know, starting 50 projects a day um, is really overwhelming to most people that are not even doing 50 projects in three years, probably. So, you know, how, how do you show that professionalism, that value, you know, the systems you built, you know, how, how can someone market that and use that to essentially find the ideal client? So I think it starts with understanding the value that you create for your customer. And that has to, the value is only, it's what they need. It's not what we need. That value is for, we, for example, we have clients who specifically are obsessed with the construct of, of completion times for very good reasons. If that job is not done on time, they risk a new resident not being able to meet their move-in date. Someone is waiting to move in. And the customer service and financial repercussions of that date not being available are substantial. So for these customers, and we have several of these types, hitting those dates becomes first. That, that's the most important thing. The second most important thing is that when the person moves in, it needs the unit needs to be ready to go, clean, you know, finished. There can't be a bunch of problems still. If maybe we're renovating a kitchen, but they leave the existing microwave and we're supposed to clean that microwave and leave it functional in place on the scope. If that microwave is not clean, that new resident will lose their mind. Right. And so so we've learned that the most important second most important thing besides being on time is the units have to be ready and clean and look like your mom was walking in. She'd be happy with the condition. Right. The the can the condition in which we prepare these units for the new residents has to hit a certain standard. And then third, we have to meet their budget. But budget is third, right? And and we can't break their budget. We've got to be fair in there. But I've got, there is a space in between, um, between cheap and, and break even and fair. And that's where we want to work on that other side closer to the fair number. And I don't think you can be expensive all the time. There's certainly markets and products and services where you can be, but in our world, we want to be fair and we can make money if we're fair. We can be a profitable company, deliver on time and deliver a great quality. There's that magic little triangle thing, right? You've probably seen this idea where, you know, I do quality, I do it fast, you know, I can do it cheap, which, which, which matters to you more. And your clients will tell you if you ask, you know, and often it's not cheap. You know, that's often not the one that people lean into. You know, I can do it perfectly. It's really, really expensive and will take me longer. Um, you know, I can do it perfectly quickly, and that's really even more expensive. You know, <laughs> cheaply, it may take a while. It won't look as good, right? So what matters, and I think as you begin to, you want to get to the right number where you're profitable as a company and successful and stable growing, got to align that triangle to, your, to where you can deliver and your customers happy. So have you ever asked your customer that the reason, because all of us have heard this, you know, I've spoken about this in the past too, you know, you have those three tiers of the triangle. You could pick two, maybe one. You're definitely getting all three. But essentially for you, Michael, I mean, you're doing a really good job understanding that, you know, similar example I have, you know, this is years ago. I don't know what Walmart's charging now, but a friend of mine worked for a commercial company and Walmart had LDs, right? Liquidated damages. And if you don't finish yes. this, 100, 100 grand a day. Yes. Yeah. So a hundred thousand a day, I, I would assume it's a lot more now, but this was, you know, 12 years ago. Right. And, um, because just as you said, I mean, Walmart has everything figured to have all these trucks from distribution stock in a store ready to go. And they had to have landscape done, you know, parking, everything had to be done. You know, they had a checklist there, but essentially same thing for you. You have clients that, you know, big demand they have. And, and I like how you broke this out. You said it's cheap, you know, it's break even it's fair or expensive. You know, there's essentially four tiers there to the pricing metric. And essentially, as you mentioned, creating value, there's a track record, uh, history of performance, systems, organization, you know, all these things kind of maybe could put you more into the fair and expensive, but you, you can't just do that overnight. It takes time. You have to have a, as a yeah. And then you have to really showcase that you have the competency and capability to do this and perform and, you know, settle litigation and lawsuits and keep your customers happy and so forth. Um, so how often are you asking the client, Hey, Here's my triangle pick two. I mean, how the, the due dil, diligence in that 
vetting process and that pre-construction process to really understand the goals of the client to make sure that you know as a company you can live up to that, uphold it, and, and perform. We've been fortunate to work with some clients over a long period of time, so it helps to evolve that relationship and that conversation. We've had clients that changed the things that were most important to them. I have one client of mine in particular, they specifically changed from we want it done perfect to we want it done cheap. They, and they, it was a conscious decision. They, they, we were delivering a quality level that was, let's call it uh, a 9.5 out of 10. And it was costing 9.5 out of 10. And some things evolved with their situation financially, um, COVID-related and non-COVID-related stuff, just the overall performance of that particular property. They wanted a six. And they're like, well, sorry, they wanted to pay for a six. They kind of wanted us to still deliver about an eight, you know, on that quality scale, but they wanted to pay a six. And those were hard conversations that it, you really have to be detailed about what the difference is. And you've got to change because it's a big organization. You have to change the alignment of the inspectors, you know, their quality control team that's inspecting our work um, operationally. Those things had to all be kind of reset because they simply didn't want to spend the money anymore. And uh, things changed. <clears throat> so, and then we actually also, in this particular case, because we do a lot of punch work after the fact for, you know, if a resident moves in, they're not happy with something. In some cases, we go back to fix that. We were tracking all of that and reporting back and using data to have the conversation with the customer about what were the costs of those changes. They used to have almost no call. Residents were blown away by the experience of moving in to the new apartment because they were just flawless, beautiful. Okay, well, now they have some callbacks. And what does that cost? What is that both time, customer service, et cetera? And I think this is, this is unique for us. I think every person listening to this is going to have to understand their customer. This is, can't stress enough, it's important knowing your customer and understanding what's important to them. When you're selling residential remodel work, for example, Understanding each individual homeowner may seem a bit daunting, but these are things you can pull out in an initial meeting with someone to understand what's important. Maybe they've got a high school graduation coming up and they want to, they're having a big party for their friends and family in the neighborhood for their, you know, kids who are graduating and they want the house done on time. I promise you being done before that party, having the house repainted before the party or the renovation done, that's the thing. And it's not worth a thousand or two thousand dollars in cost to them to not have it done on time. There's always someone who'll do it cheaper, right? Always. Every, I don't care what the price is, someone somewhere will do it cheaper. Don't fight that battle. That's a yeah. losing road right there. But but I um, love that context too, Michael, because when you speak about that, even a client, you know, doing a remodel, new build, whatever, they have goals, right? They have family life. I mean, there, there's commitments for me. It's pretty common that clients are looking at this by season. And what I mean is they're like, Brad, I don't want to miss a season. And essentially, you know, half of my clients are from the Midwest. So Arizona's great for them. You know, this time of year, you know, you're in New York, it's pretty cold, yeah. it's wet, it's, you know, it, it's gray, it's miserable. And they're like, I want to be right now. Right now it's, you know, 55 degrees. They could be outside golfing, beautiful oh. in Arizona. So they look at this like that October to April, I don't want to miss that. I need to be in there. And so we, so we have to understand that. And, and I found that it's, it's a lot better to communicate with your customers. As you mentioned, sometimes we'll try to overpromise something. I know we can't get it done. And we were starting a renovation. The client's like, we're getting married, you know, at this date, we want the house done. And I'm just like, there's no way. Like, I, yeah. I just know how this is going to go and it's going to come down to your wedding day and you're going to be stressed about the wedding and we're not going to be done. So we're going to be yeah. done four months after your wedding. So we're just going to have to work around that or we postpone the project or start later, maybe after the wedding. Or, or add a zero to your budget. Or a 2X. Yeah, we can yeah. do it. For, it's going to cost a lot more, right? And that, that's yeah. that, that it's, a, it's a tough one. I, I've, you know, the other thing a lot of us run into though is, is that idea that, well, Someone else gave me a price that's less. And how do you have that conversation with your with your customer that, you know, what's what's the value there? And and there is all I think it's important the longer you do this, the more you truly understand your own number. What are my actual profit numbers? What what do I have to do to hit the goals? And if you're fair and you understand your labor costs, your material costs, et cetera, your overhead somewhat 
you know, understood, you should know exactly what this costs both for you and likely what it roughly costs for someone else to do it. And if they're doing it that much cheaper, they are cutting a corner somewhere. It's there's a certain point which you can't do something for less and you can't do the same thing for less. Now you get, we call it Chuck in a truck, right? The guy can come out and he'll put in a new kitchen for you, you know, by himself for less. He has his insurance, whether it's workers' comp type things or just his, he has any overhead. He doesn't have an office. If you have a problem, good luck getting him back on the phone. You're going to have to sell through some of those limitations that, that Chuck has when he is competing with you because sometimes that happens. In our world, we started getting quite a bit of pressure on price as our overhead climbed, as we grew, you know, 20 people, you have one set of overhead, you have, you know, 100 people, you have a lot different level of overhead. That we had to find places to to control costs because our overhead, we had more fixed costs that needed to be absorbed. And sometimes we couldn't always absorb that in pricing. So I think as, you know, as you start to compete with smaller companies, you have to also look really carefully at all of your line items to see where, you know, where are your real expenses pushing? What what can you control? What can't you control? What can you, to your point earlier, push back towards your uh, your customers? And it's a it's a competitive thing. Understand? Don't don't try and outprice Chuck and his truck because it's a it's a good way to lose money on the job. It is, and and what's tough about that, I think. At least my personality. You have to understand your personality as a business owner too. I mean, you you speak about understanding the pricing, but. Michael, when you think about this, some of us love the hunt and the kill, right? The chase of getting a new client, getting awarded, and it's so exciting. But we have to understand you have to say no, right? There could be goals that are not aligned. Yeah. Part of that triangle is not aligned. And if it's not, we have to be willing to step back and say no. Because even to some extent, if we understand our numbers and we we know where we need to be, it could be that we we drop it down enough or we're trying to fit down this funnel to get this project and make it work with the budget and time frame of the client. It what's ended up happening is now this project becomes insurmountable. It takes half of our resources, company time, pricing exercises. We don't need the practice. You know, it's all this stuff that goes into it that can really wear out the team, you know, just for, you know, this client just to make it happen. Right. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that you have some experience in it. How many of your jobs go perfectly? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, right. it'd be right. amazing I mean, if they all did, right? Yeah. How many of but how many ever, right? How many of our jobs yeah. ever go perfectly? Not that some don't go really well, but how many of them go perfectly? And I think we frequently get pulled into this idea during, you know, bidding and pricing in competitive environments, especially, that, well, gosh, you know what? We can make this number work. I find that the minute we're having that conversation, we can make it work because it's gonna go well. We're going to do it just right. And as long as everything kind of comes together, yeah, we actually could make money. We could actually hit our number on this, maybe. I mean, and then you, if you actually step back and looked at yourself having that conversation, you're like, how often do our jobs go perfectly? So you're willing to take a risk because if it doesn't go perfectly, then what? That means you just broke even. And really, if you break even, it means you're loaning money to your customer for free, right. which is effectively losing money, which a lot of contractors don't grasp their cost of being the bank for our clients, which is what we do when they pay us someday in the future and we pay our people now. So we function as a bank for our customers and that costs you money. And a lot of times that's never, and you don't equate that in your head when you're bidding a job. You think, well, I need to charge $85 an hour for my team's time and I've got excellent amount of materials. I mark it up, some overhead. What was your cost of lending your customer that money and when you eventually get paid your retainage out 120 days or 180 days after the job finally closes, you actually see some profit. What was that loan worth? It's just as a metaphor almost to the accounting correctly for your costs. And the job didn't go perfectly. So you had to, to rework, which is the bane of all contractors. Um, and so between your little bit of rework, the job didn't go perfectly, two material delays and your loan to your customer, your job that almost went perfect didn't, and you lost money on it, and you should have never taken it in the first place. So it's, I think, you know, there, there's a, it's a pricing challenge. Our industry as a whole, I think, underprices what we do and for the risk that we take. It's kind of what I was saying earlier. 
This episode is brought to you by Pella Windows. When it comes to building homes at AFT, almost every project has Pella Windows. And they've been just an incredible partner of ours. And locally, Sammy and Adam, they are not only amazing business partners behind us, but they are super close friends. And I speak on the podcast all the time about the importance of relationships, right? Relations with our customers, with our vendors, with our suppliers. Because at the end of the day, I'm only as good as those that help our brand and assist us in our projects to, to take it from the ground up all the way to completion. And if we didn't have partners such as Pella, there's no way we'd be who we are today. Over the years, we've built this amazing relationship. When we call them or email them, they respond. They're quick. They're, their company culture, their integrity, their honesty, you know, they are always there to do what's right for us and the customer. They can do anything from small replacement projects to large custom homes and even multi-million dollar commercial projects. And also, when you think about their product line, they can do ultra contemporary, historical preservation, and large traditional projects. So for anyone, any scale, any size, they're the ones to call. They're here local. You know, they have an amazing Instagram. Make sure and give them a follow to see what they're doing. So if you need windows and doors, give Sammy and Adam a call. We stand behind Pella. We love what they do, their culture, their brand, and especially their quality. And if you want to learn more about Pella Windows, check our show notes. We'll have everything tagged there so you can give them a follow and have their contact information to reach out. I, I, I love these shirts that went, especially getting into the banking aspect, because this is something we don't think about enough. And, you know, essentially how many of us are financing jobs and whether we're not taking deposits, we're not applying them to the end, not understanding, right, slow pay, how that affects. And it's easy how I can see early in my career, not understanding that like I should have is, you know, you'd kind of be lenient on certain things, on payment terms, durations, deposits, you know, client would come in and say, Brad, I want the deposit, the deposit applied to the first three draws. Well, then you get burned and you realize you're financing the entire project. What's interesting about that is this can be incredibly complex. I mean, you mentioned early on the conversation prevailing wage. I grew up in California. I worked prevailing wage. I understand that a lot of people may not, you may want to explain that because for you, Michael, when you start thinking labor, you know, prevailing wage is typically three X, at least it was for me in California from 10 bucks an hour to 30 bucks an hour because of the certain projects you're working on that payroll that's due every week, that overtime, that stuff, if you're not getting funded, you're the bank, Michael. And so for you, this could be catastrophic. It, it, when you, you take your first prevailing wage job, you better have some cash in the bank <laughs> and it is, it is cool work in some ways. There's, there's so prevailing wage just for anybody who doesn't quite get it. It is common in New York, uh, the Northeast, um, California, some other states, Colorado, quite a bit, government projects generally where you're paying effectively the union rate um, most of the time. That's the way it's aligned for the workers. For non-union employees. So for, like for non-union union, workers. Yeah. Union rate, 35 bucks an hour. You may have someone that's non-union and you're paying them the same thing. Uh, they ain't $35 in New York. <laughs> no. <laughs> so our, a painter in our company um, is there, they're, prevailing wage, I believe right now is about 45 and then they get another 30 or so dollars on top of that for what we call fringe, which is their benefits package, which they actually get to cash out if they leave. Anyway, it's crazy stuff there too. But basically think of it as $75 an hour for a painter, which at first you may be like, oh my gosh, how in the world can you ever make money $75 paying painter that much? Well, the customer, the city, frankly, is getting charged you know, 120, you know, that's what we have, we're building into our model for when we price the job. The good thing is that there is a lot of cash flowing through a project like that. So as a cash flow kind of centric industry that we are, we have more cash flowing through our businesses, which does have some advantages to us. The second part is you ought to be able to hire better people when you're paying two and a half times market rates on wages. So we really leverage that higher pay scale because we do both prevailing and non-prevailing wage work to move and rotate people with, you know, who are higher performing in one place into the prevailing wage work um, almost as a bonus opportunity. And that really can motivate folks to, you know, want to want to hit their targets and goals and be good workers and show up on time and uh, be sober. Um, some of the other things we look for in, in great employees uh, but those are, those are, it's a vehicle for us, I think, to reward people. And, and it is a great living wage, uh, on those projects. There's d- debate the other, you know, aspects of it quite a bit, I think, for another podcast, but there, <laughs> it is, it is a, it is something that there are some upsides to it as a, as a customer, but we pay every week. 
and every week those checks have to get cut and the certified payrolls are going out and the, you know, we get paid later. Um, there's no other way to sugarcoat that, right? And we do not get paid every week. So uh, the delta between those two numbers can get really high when you've got, you know, 62 people on prevailing wage projects in, in a week. You know, that's a, that's a lot of money. So again, understanding financials, banking, right? Making sure you have draws and requests, getting paid in timely manner deposits, whether it is so you can float that. Because as you mentioned, you're not yes. getting funded every week from your client, and but you're funding your people every week yes, we on, on these large numbers. Let me ask you this, and, and you know, the, the best way to explain this, because one thing, when I was young in my career, very familiar with prevailing wage, and I was an employee at the time. So one of the challenges was, you know, for us, as an employee, of course, you just want to work on prevailing wage jobs. You know, the private job gets awarded in downtown San Diego, in Little Italy or whatever business, but, you know, you're going to be paid a normal hourly wage instead of prevailing. So there's always this conflict with employees because when they would get doing the same amount, you know, the same scope of work, but they're going to pay 3x on prevailing, and then they go to this one, the private job, private sector, and they're getting 1x. It was always tough company culture-wise. You know, how do you navigate that? Because you are getting better people, as you mentioned, but at the same time, you have to make sure that, you know, they're, they're budgeting this in their day-to-day living as well. Uh, we score everybody and rank everybody. So from a productivity standpoint, we need to know who is generating good, high-quality work safely on time. If they're beating budgets, beating schedules. And there's a lot of communication um, on top of that. So kind of know where you stand and it's also an understanding that you will just our approach we're trying to always balance it a little bit it doesn't always work exactly this way but just think of it as a 75 25 rule you're going to get 75 percent of your work if you're at the top kind of group in our company on prevailing wage but even the best guys we may rotate you back to other projects but as a collective whole you'll be at the upper end of the you know that kind of group of of workers we want want to reward our people. If you're at the lower end, you may get 10% of your work or zero on prevailing wage. And and you'll have the rest of it just on market because you simply don't produce enough to kind of earn that right. If we had all prevailing wage, it'd be different or all market would be different. But we use a lot of communication. We use it as a motivational um, element to get people excited to be here. But nobody gets all prevailing wage work. At least I don't think so. So well, essentially, I mean, everybody goes back and forth a little bit. Yeah. So essentially, I mean, your key performance indicators, key KPIs, right? That companies should have, they should understand. Yes. You know, this is something I'm focused on right now with my company and leadership team is understanding these metrics, right? Whether it's like the financial side, the sales, the pre-con, and especially performance in the field. What are the key performance indicators? How can we track that? And you mentioned you have a score and rank system without getting into specifics. This is important, right? This is important to understand the health of your workforce and the culture and how they can understand financially, you know, their incentives based on how they're performing. Yeah. We rank um, everybody based on essentially how much ahead of schedule do they bring in their jobs? How often do they have to go back to do rework, um, which hits in essentially their productivity scoring. Um, And then Ironically, we because we bonus people out on overperforming to budgets, what is their wage lift, um, wage growth over their base? If they're not above zero, then they're actually probably overpaid on an hourly base. So if someone is earning $30 an hour, but they don't average above that because of the way our bonus structure works, that means the 30 is probably higher than what they actually produce but we track their productivity against each part of We actually break our jobs into pretty small little buckets. You know, if we have a renovation of an apartment, for example, it'd be demo will be one phase of it. Uh, Maybe the wall prep and the floor, the paint, the fixtures, the new cabinets, countertops. Each of those is kind of a, a part of the project. And we're tracking everybody's time against each one of those, each individual and each team's time against those projects. We know, did they bring that job or that part of the job in under or above the goal for that. And that granularity has been invaluable to us in the way that we compensate hourly workers for helping us be successful. So let me ask you this because this is super valuable. And so essentially what Michael's explaining and you explain, Michael, is that um, 
you, you're tracking jobs are broken down to a certain aspect, right? Schedule mm-hmm. and, and, and call it a budget, right? That, that, you know, based yes. on your history that they should perform in this amount of time. So if they're paid this hourly wage and they're breaking even, we know we're paying them too much or they're going too slow. And that's where maybe well, the piece perfectly paid, which, yeah, yeah. yeah, perfectly paid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You could, you know, use right. that as well, but essentially, you know, and, and it just got my mind thinking about how, you know, every company can apply this to theirs. What's unique for you is you have, and this is what we're going to get into now, part of the, the tech that you've created, you know, this, this app where your, you know, labor is a big part of what we do before we get there, you know, the difference yes. between piece rate, pros and cons of piece rate, pros and cons of hourly. Sure. And then how do you balance both of those? So hourly pay structurally is the hypothesis we have is simply not a great way to pay people. It, it, the legal structures we need to pay people, but it doesn't create internal motivation for the worker to produce quality work, to be safe, to do things productively, to work harder. That's not incumbent within the structure of hourly pay. The, the challenge is that piece rate, which is what a lot of people try and rotate to piece rate, piece rate has its own problems. It actually can, one, it's legally problematic, but two, you have you can have people cut corners because if you have a fixed target amount they're gonna get paid, and it looks like it's going to go, you know, they're going to start making less money than they normally made hourly. Then that's when they cut corners, they're unsafe, they have quality problems. So piece rate isn't a solution and hourly pay isn't a solution. So kind of where does it land? In our world, we the model we implement for our company was, was a blended system of the two. So our team maintains a base hourly rate. So they have a floor that, you know, is, is good. They have a goal that they can forecast how they're going to perform against that goal that is effectively a piece rate target. And if they overperform, they make that difference. And the other thing is we make it automatic. It's not a trust us, we're going to do it as a percentage of GP at the quarter or anything like that. This is automatic on their next paycheck. As long as the quality is done right and they beat the budget for that, they make that difference as a bonus on their check. And that, that combination we found was, it's kind of a hybrid model, if you would, is really the key. It, it, you need to have a goal. Where they, and importantly, they need to know what that is very, very clearly. In, in our world, we, because we track everything, especially through the way they clock in and out to each project, we know how much time they have on it. They know how much time they have on it. And they know how they're progressing against their personal goal that they set as to what they want to earn. Carpenter hypothetically as he wants 10 hours to install these cabinets. He thinks he can get it done in eight. He can see what his earnings will be if he finishes in eight versus if he takes 10. If it takes him 11, he's making his normal hourly rate. It's not a penalty. We don't penalize our guys because sometimes sometimes we get it wrong. Right? We're, it's, it's construction. Sometimes we're wrong. And and that's okay. We, we want them motivated to perform better but not penalizing them when things go a little bit slower. We found that that balance eliminated most of that, that rushing quality control, I try and hurry type things that, that mostly went away, especially because if they have to go back and fix it in our model, they're, they're losing that opportunity for the bonus. So our, our structure allows them to earn a bonus if they get it done right the first time and beat the schedule. It's not a penalty for the other one. And that, that for us became the right balance. There, there's a lot of planning that goes into that because, I mean, as you think about this, really how you're, you're breaking apart a job because these aren't, uh, for lack of a better word, you're not going to go install a fireplace. You know, just, you know, one thing, you're in and out. I mean, as you mentioned, you guys are self-performing, multifamily in New York City. I mean, there's a lot of elements, right, that go into these bills. Yeah. So there's been a lot of strategy, right, and coordination to give them metrics that they can achieve. But essentially with that floor, well, now you're compensating them. So they, they do have that compensation and they just have nothing but incentive now to work quicker, more efficiently, still keep the quality because if they have to go back, they're losing That's you know, right. some of that, that oppor- it's opportunity cost that they're losing. And yeah. how, how has that changed? Because all of us are dealing with labor, you self-perform. So labor is really important to you, Michael. How has that affected the quality of people that work for you? Our best people never leave. I'll share that. The we have their reward for being here because they can overperform and earn more. They they kill it. We have we have some some folks. Sometimes we like we we might be paying them too much. They're just really good at what they do, and, and they're just fast. And 
and they I will say there's three things that almost invariably exist. One is they do the work right the first time. They they just they don't ever have to go back and fix it. That makes them more money. Two, they don't you notice they don't waste time on their jobs. You'll you can see them working efficiently. And three, I have found that workers who have clean, organized job sites are far more profitable in the way that they perform than the disorganized guys. Um, I, I just, I found that to be a commonality. Keep your job site organized. Think about what you're doing. Don't waste time. Do it right the first time. Your earnings will go up. Our workers are averaging right now about 10.5% higher wages than they do in their base because of our um, pro-pay structure. We call it pro-pay. It's the base amount they earn as a bonus. That that structure is, um, the workers on that are on average earn about 10.5% more. And our labor costs actually are flat to down. So we, we actually are technically spending less than we were spending before this program started because our compre- we've had compression in the length of time it takes us to finish projects. Okay, so here's the key success story right here is that the, the, the employees on average, and I guess you're, you're always going to have some that are performing better, but the average of course, we're making yes. about 10.5% more based on their hourly rates. So that incentive's real to them. I mean, it's right there. And then, but you as the owner are paying less labor burden overall because of the performance and efficiency and organization and all the things you just mentioned. Yeah. It's, it is almost kind of crazy. I mean, we look at the math sometimes it surprises like our labor costs have come down and our wages go up Mm -hmm. at the same time. That is coming from the fact that workers are more productive because they work harder because they get a bit more done in each hour and each day they do things right the first time. We have less rework. That allows us to do more work. Probably the for us, because we have a lot of work to do, I always kind of somewhere else to send people, we're able to sell more with the team we have. So I have capacity now within the organization. We've created hours that we sell effectively. Our capacity for revenue has gone up and we make quite a bit more money on a per worker basis we generate more revenue than we did before, which again helps offset our higher overhead costs. And, and this really ties back to just a few minutes ago when we're discussing the opportunity costs, right? Of, you know, we take a job that we're just kind of forcing bottleneck to get in, to have it instead of saying no. And that can cost us other jobs. And essentially, Michael, what you've done with your labor is now you're so efficient and incentivized that jobs are performing more quickly. They're not taking a long time. You can sell those hours per se to a new client. You can have more projects. And so now with these efficiencies and systems and tracking and metrics and the KPIs that now you've created this well-oiled machine where people are committed and they have incentive and it's very clearly defined for them. We we feel that there's also a, a better cultural alignment with our workers. Uh, guys will come in and fire Bob. They'll come in and they'll be like, can you please not put Bob on our team anymore? The guy, <laughs> the guy can't he doesn't know how to hammer a nail. Like it's just, there's a, there becomes a conversation that evolves between the workers, their peers and their supervisors and us that says, this is the environment in which we can be most productive because they care a little bit more. They want to bring the jobs in ahead of schedule. There's a alignment that begins to occur between the way they think about work and the way we think about work. And I, we want to reward them for that. It's a, I, we lean into that. We want them to feel empowered to come to us with ideas on tools, come to us ideas on process, come to us ideas on on whatever they think they can do to deliver a job ahead of schedule. If they can do their part, we'll do our part, reward them for that. There's a synergy in that over ownership thinking per se that is is really powerful. And, and you can't discredit that. I mean, you have to account the synergy, the company culture, the accountability, right? And instead of you, Michael, trying to ownership group, trying to make everyone accountable, it's, it's self-contained, it's self-accounted, right? That they're doing this legal aspect. Any any concerns, challenges legally, you know, working through the structure that you've created? So one of the reasons we maintain the hourly rate in that base pay is because there are legal structures within hourly pay that have to be maintained overtime, minimum wage, wage disclosure, et cetera. We have a really high end labor lawyer that 
has kind of vetted this program out for us, spent a lot of money on that to make sure we were compliant with the rules. And we've even done this now in New York, California, both um, this program has actually been run and it has, it stands up to those environments. So even in the more complex minimum wage OT structures that you may see, especially around overtime, there are some rules that how it gets applied to their checks um, because it's a recurring bonus structure. But we, again, had to solve for those things early on. That's one of the reasons piece rate is, in and of itself is problematic. Um, what we've developed had to stand up to that. It's interesting you bring that up because I think a lot of people that are paying piece rate, you know, tile companies, um, I mean, there's a long list, right? Framers, I mean, and, and there's subcontract stuff, paying piece rate. But as you mentioned, I mean, there's minimum wage and hourly rates that should be paid legally. And if because of the piece rates not set accordingly or it's taken longer and they're not hitting that, that's where you can have some legal uh, pushback. Yeah. For companies that want to pivot, they still need some level of piece rate type control, but they want to make sure they're legally compliant. We found this is a better model. And it, it really is, um, it, it's just a little bit safer from a, a legal stake in the ground over straight piece rate. You can do piece rate and it be legally compliant. It's just hard to do. And, and that it takes a lot of, a lot of Excel time, a lot of math. And they're just an easier, we have found an easier way to approach solving the vast majority of that. Again, it takes the stick out of it. I, I want to point this out. The piece rate in and of itself has a carrot and a stick. If you finish faster, you make more. If you finish slower, you make less. When you take out the stick part, then you create the floor. It changes the, both the legal dynamic of the way it works from a wage and hour standpoint, as well as the psychology of actually within the worker. So this how is something this... that workers will lean into. I, I have found workers like this. So far, we have seen workers very positively respond to this as a whole. Not universally, but as a, as a whole, workers tend to enjoy this form of pay. A base plus the opportunity to earn a bonus that they can see, touch, understand is really powerful. Well, it goes back to just 101, right? You speak to any entrepreneur, any business owner of any industry, right? If employees clearly understand their role, if they understand their scope of work, if they understand, you know, how they're compensated. And then number two, they, they believe in the company. Essentially, it's just that simple. You have those two elements and, and that's what you've done. Is so, I mean, you mentioned the retention, you know, retention's an issue for a lot of people in any industry. And for you to have no issues with retention, it just shows that there is a buy-in from your employee force, you know, for the system you created. Also start our recruiting conversations off with this compensation model so that, because, you know, Bob walks in your office, he's like, hey, I'm the greatest carpenter ever. <laughs> and you need to pay me. I know you say you pay $35 an hour, but you're going to pay me 45 because I'm so good. Like, okay, Bob, we're going to find out. We're going to find yep. out exactly how good you are. Because if you're really good here, you can make 50. Yeah. Oh, he gets all excited, but your base is going to be 35 like everybody else, right? And so you start in this this environment where you're if they are as good as they say they are, don't worry. You can make all the money you want to make here and and really overperform industry norms because it's in it we have the money in our budgets to to pay more if these guys will bring these jobs in on time. Get it done right the first time, bring it in on time. You make our, our life so much easier as a as a as a general or a, or a large subcontractor that, that that that's almost the secret to success is, you know, don't get hurt, <laughs> do it right. The first time, bring it in on time and we can all benefit from that uh, effort and that focus also lets our supervisors spend a little less time on, on getting on to guys to hurry up and a little bit more time on quality checks, safety, you know, staying on safety, staying on the quality, um, you know, client engagement, you know, make sure logistically all the materials where they need to be, everything's lined up. All the other things that supervisors sometimes aren't doing when they're yelling at Bob to hurry up. So how did this lead to the your patent software, right? That now here you are taking so, this amazing process and now allowing yeah, others to use it. That was so, we know a lot of other contractors, obviously we came out of other industries and other type of contractors. And so you tell your friends about it. Hey, here's what we're doing. And they're like, oh, I'd like to try that. So we gave it to some people last summer, friends, people we knew just oh, here. We kind of unplugged the one little part from our system and just handed, almost handed it out to I don't know, a dozen different companies or so. And 
turns out it worked really well for them too, across a few different industries too. You know, deck building company and a concrete company, and just a few different ones. And um, turns out they liked it. So that got our wheels spinning. We realized we were, nobody else had anything like it. There wasn't another system out there you could buy that was kind of a you know managed hybrid compensation model for for hourly workers. So we, yeah, we filed a, a, a provisional patent on it, and we have uh, um, built a, a now as a standalone platform called Protiv that uh, people can buy and, and use. And we've been having some success with it. We started selling it in August, and we're already in 26 states. Uh, so, yeah, some success with that. Because it intuitively works, and it works in real life. That's the People get it. Everybody's wanted to do this, right? I, I hardly ever talked to a contractor that ever says, no, I never wanted to pay my people based on what they get. <laughs> Everybody always wants to do that. It's the translation to doing it practically, consistently compliant at scale without it being a bunch of administrative Excel sheets and crazy. And the software makes it relatively easy to do that. And so that's what we've, we've brought out. So, so plan wise, I mean, especially now that you've had other companies use it, they become successful, you know, change their operating yeah. procedures, you know, that marketing strategy, how do you plan to expand if someone's listening and says, Michael, I want access to the software next steps. So obviously protiv.com, P-R-O-T-I-V.com, they can go there and set a little, uh, you know, sign up with us. Um, we'll connect and do a little demo, demo of the software for anybody who's interested. That's a great way to, to connect to us. We can send, we actually built a, we wrote a guide. It's a five-step guide to how to run a performance-based pay. Just, we'll show you how to do it if you want to do it on your own. Our software makes it really easy to do it. But if you just want to go and try this on your own, we actually wrote a guide on how to do it, which we will send people. Um, no problem. That's uh, that's available as well. In fact, I'll get you a link you can send out attached. That'd be awesome. Um, so those are, you know, that's a good way to start. But we're now in several different industry verticals pretty deeply. Uh, a lot of a lot of painters, a lot of carpenters, a lot of you know deck building, pool companies, landscaping, hardscaping, um, uh, concrete. Uh, it's, you know different different versions. Roofing just got our first roofing uh, companies on board. So there are uh, different different types of industries. If it's construction, you have hourly workers. You know this kind of just is a better way to pay people. So we've been excited about the way it's worked for us, and and excited to take it out to the market. We're, you know, we're contractors. We want our folks to be successful with this uh, if they want to give it a try. How were the bumps and bruises building ProTip? Right as you're going through just the app, and so you have your in-house knowledge of how you're doing it now. Okay, yeah. now I got to create it user-friendly for others that'll be using it. Yeah, it was uh, it was one thing when it was in Excel, and there was a few people. It got a lot hairier as we got bigger and bigger. But we've worked a lot of it out just because we were bit bigger company and through some of our friends who were trying it out over the summer we beat up a lot of the bugs we still get companies that try and use it the wrong way and we every time you give software to somebody learn something else about how they're going to approach using it we had a client just this morning telling us that of their six crews two of them they don't pay pro pay to the four of them they do because two crews didn't like it the funny thing is the two crews that didn't like it they're still tracking all their time into ProPay. They just don't get a bonus. They just pay hourly, just like they were before. They thought that the company was trying to take something from them, that if somehow they were on this ProPay, that they might make less. There was a fear from the worker that if you're changing anything around my compensation, it must be to hurt me or to take from me. And, and they couldn't get their head around it, that if you just get done early, you make more. That was too much for them. So the, so the company was like, fine. No problem, but you're still going to clock into this because we're still job costing it. And they're literally tracking how much money these guys are leaving on the table. So we've learned a lot. We also know that it's important that the, our clients, one, it needs to probably, most of the people who are successful with this have, their their owner of the company is not out there on the job site personally doing the work. It's, it, companies where you're not there personally is when it starts to kind of be more valuable. And two, you need to have a, Digital time tracking works better. So if you have something like QuickBooks Time, T-Sheets, or Vericlock, or BusyBusy, Busy, one of these time tracking systems that you're using where your folks clock in and out on their phones, that gives us the real-time tracking data that is critical for this to really perform well. 
and we do it with teams. We do it with, we've got some very big companies, you know, one company we just signed on is 400 employees. We've got some companies with five. So, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's not complicated. We usually take us a day, you know, to get someone set up. And, and- and I, and I love that because as you mentioned, you know, if the owner's not on site all the time, tracking himself, right. Or herself. Yeah. And then additionally, you know, with the time track element, but what's really valuable that you just shared is that whether you're a subcontracting company, you know, pool contractor, you know, roofer, as you mentioned, you know, stucco yes. company, I mean, whatever it is, it, it applies to every business as well as a general contractor. And then you could even have the hybrid aspect where, you know, some employees may, as a company mentioned this morning, that four of them, four crews may say, yeah, we're all on board and two of them may not, but you can still internally track that and job costed and, you know, essentially yes. build your platform to be, you know, more successful. Yeah. It, it, there are, there are certain times where the job just may not be the right kind of job to set appropriate structure on. It's fine. The system allows you to run jobs both ways. Uh, you know, it, it works the majority of the time. Construction job, You've got, you're building something out, whether you're, again, you're small things to big things. Um, it, it, it has worked pretty well. We've seen some multi-hundred thousand dollar projects come through that we tend to find that those are better when you break them into small pieces. But, you know, people want to run it that way. And we've seen people run, you know, $75 pro pay to just go swap this, fix this, and, you know, come back and pay 75 bucks. Okay. You know, that's. They both they, they both can work. Uh, we like working with the clients on trying to figure out how to implement this for their company and make it successful for the particular structure, both the way you estimate, the way that you assign work to your teams, the way you break work up, the way you track your labor costs, and your, uh, et cetera, and the way you want to reward your team. How do you want to align compensation and bonuses to your company culture goals? So we spent quite a bit of time working with each client on setting that up to make them successful. So what is it? Yeah. I I mean, I can, I can see that. So how, you know, schedule wise time for you, you know, as you think about what's up kind of and exciting for you, you have the business aspect, you have the, you know, the app here and you know, the, the software program, you know, how does that, what is up kind of exciting? I mean, especially with these two, you know, two irons in the fire. So we, uh, I'm fortunate I have, there was four of us that started the construction company and now we're broken into two and two. So uh, two partners that um, run the construction side, we actually just did a very large JV uh, with with a much, much larger construction company. So we're effectively now been somewhat absorbed into a much bigger company, Um, not completely, but for a lot of the operational back end office stuff is now picked up by them. So two guys are running that side of it. Now we're part of a much bigger company on that side. And then two of us, David and myself are running um, Proto mostly full time all the time now. It's kind of my everyday focus. Out raising money for it um, in our friends and family round and doing our first seed uh, venture capital round here. Hopefully shortly, we're um, in due diligence with uh, a couple of VC funds right now. So raising money to hopefully scale this up. Um, it seems like people like it. It's amazing. I mean, it's just awesome. <clears throat> and and when you reached out, Michael, I was just totally on board. I'm like. First off, Michael, as you, you've done, you know, speak 45 minutes about building an incredible company and the logistics and so many nuggets right there. And then, of course, you know, here's here's the solution, <laughs> you know, the tried and true method. You use it, apply it, sign up for it. And then essentially, you know, you can help with retention. You can help with financials and, yeah. you know, company culture. Like Your team will like it. Culture is improved. Labor costs get better managed and can often come down. It's, it's been a lot of fun to see this go in place and see people uh, be successful with it been fun for us and we're looking to do a lot more of it so what do you do for fun i mean with the, these two with so much going on on both sides of this you know what's your outlet um, so sailing is my hobby and uh you know love sailing teach sailing sail all over the world and uh the other thing to keep me busy right now is i'm actually getting married on saturday so I oh. <laughs> So i'm actually going to leave as soon as i hang up with you i'm actually going to lunch with my fiance and then uh Tomorrow the festivities begin, leading into Saturday. So, um, so this will be my last official act for uh, for most of the weekend. That's amazing! Um, I can't believe you made time for us. I feel yeah, scheduled well, yeah, today. Um, so. Yeah, I needed to. This is important stuff. I like sharing our story. Yeah, it's an amazing story, and and with the sensitivity there, you know, I, I want to make sure you have time. So again, for those listening, where can they find you? Pro tip, of course, sign up. You know, for the software. 
Uh, and my, they, Michael at Protive.com, um, they email me directly, happy to answer any questions, do demos of the software for anybody who wants to see it. We got the coolest guarantee program in the world. They can try it. They don't like it. I give them their money back. I mean, you know, it's we make this about no implementation fees. It's about the easiest thing to start you will ever see. So, uh, Well, this is amazing. We'll make sure we have all those links tagged as well in the notes here yeah. for everybody. Uh, social media, any Instagram that they need to sign up for? Yeah, it's a Protive ProPay. Um, and we put a lot of uh, tips and tricks up there. Some of them are really good. We're producing a bunch of more tomorrow. Um, the team is putting some more together. Just little tips and tricks of, you know, how to do things that, like, wow, that was, that's a cool way to do that. And we find that stuff adds to productivity conversations. So we do quite a bit of that on Instagram, on Protive ProPay. I think cool. that's our Instagram link. Well, we'll get all this tagged. And again, I don't want to keep you much longer, Michael. You got to get uh, to it's all good. lunch with your fiance, but can't thank you enough for making time today. Uh, it was super fun doing it, Brad. I appreciate it. I'm excited to uh, help out anybody who's interested and really appreciate your time. If you give value for the show, please support us by giving a five-star rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. And I also have a favor to ask. We've had some incredible guests that come on and share their wisdom, their knowledge about their business. So if you have friends or family members that could benefit from those episodes, please share it with them, as well as any other business owners that you're networking with that could get value from the podcast or certain episodes, please share those as well. Again, subscribe, make sure you're following any questions that you have, topics. We've had uh, listeners reach out about certain guests that we should have on the show. Again, brad.l at aftconstruction.com. Email me for topics to address, guests that we should have on, and even if you think you'd be a great guest for the show. So again, thank you for all your support and we'll see you next time.